0: the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based championship
1: team.
2: Hi, and welcome to the Yankees Magazine podcast. I'm Hillary Georgie, and I'm joined by John Schwartz. Hey, Hillary. Hey, John. And Chris Blake. Chris, why don't you introduce yourself?
3: I am Yankees Magazine editorial assistant, and I've been here for about eight or nine months ish now and i've learned that about you that you ask everybody upon meeting them what their favorite taylor swift song is
2: correct what is your favorite taylor swift song?
3: Um, story of us
2: great choice chris top top five
3: i could not tell you what that song is
2: john you gonna have to.
3: it was leave. from the album with like the purple cover
2: it's called speak now folks
3: did ryan speak adams now. cover it or no
2: he did not actually All right.
3: I, I only know taylor
4: swift songs that ryan adams covers is that good or bad
2: I mean, it's not bad. That was a pretty good album. So, it was a pretty good album. yeah. What's your favorite song off that album, John?
4: <laughs> I like them all.
2: Correct answer is blank space. Just
4: That's a good one. Yes, blank space is a good one. Thank you. Thank yeah. you.
2: I know. You're welcome. Yeah. Anyway, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the July issue that we just signed off on. So, Chris wrote a story about advanced stats and MLB Statcast. Chris, why don't you tell us a little bit about that story and why exactly you wanted to write it?
3: Well, I wanted to write it because Statcast is essentially ever present in any sort of baseball video you watch now, whether it's on MLB Network or ESPN or wherever, everybody's starting to implement it into their TV broadcast, and it does so much more than just tell us how hard somebody hit her ball or how hard the pitcher threw the ball, which we could tell, obviously, before StatCast, um, but it's really changing the way teams play the game, even if players don't want to admit it the information gets filtered down to them through the coaches eventually and it's also drastically changing the way that rosters are put together
2: explain that like how does something like spin rate or exit velocity kind of have those changes
3: well spin rate is something that teams are using to construct their rosters a little bit not necessarily if you have a high spin rate you make the team but if you're a minor leaguer or a player that Someone's looking to draft and you have a high spin rate, teams are more willing to take a chance on you because that is a skill that front offices don't think can be taught. And spin rate correlates highly to swing and miss rate. So if you can throw the ball hard with a good spin rate and also know where it's going, that in theory would lead to a lot of swing and misses. And a good example of that would be Dylan Batances, um, who has one of the top spin rates on his fastball in baseball and is also one of the most dominant relievers in the game it's funny because when you know you think about a fastball
4: you know the first thing you think about isn't the spin rate but one thing i thought was interesting in your story was just how important all this stuff is and everything they do how did you come to find out stuff like that
3: well yankees assistant general manager michael fishman was very helpful in sort of explaining how front offices use that kind of stuff and it applies obviously to everybody not just pitchers Uh, for batters the result can be come to almost more quickly as far as exit velocity goes obviously we know that if you hit the ball hard that is a good thing and a couple of folks I spoke to at MLB.com said that around roughly 40 swings or 40 batted balls uh, the exit velocity should start to show enough of a pattern to where you can draw a conclusion on a player and Fishman said being able to draw conclusions in that amount of time as opposed to waiting for a couple of years worth of minor league sample size uh, helps them make decisions much more quickly.
2: So I'm an advanced stats skeptic. So tell me I know. <laughs> <laughs> this is a big debate that we have. So. Tell me why something like exit velocity and spin rate matter more, say, maybe, than batting average or on-base percentage or some of the traditional stats that most people are likely to look at.
4: Actually, Chris, don't do that. Hillary, before Chris does this, (laughs) I want you to explain what it means to be an advanced stats skeptic.
2: Okay. Here is my issue. I just don't know why it would ever matter how many times a ball spins when a pitcher throws it. RPMs, which is rotations per minute, I've learned. And the exit velocity that Aaron Judge hits the baseball with, I don't know why that would matter more than how often he gets on base.
4: So let me ask you this question, and eventually I'll let Chris answer the question that you asked (laughs) him. You have a at least passing, if not West Wing inspired interest in politics, correct?
2: Oh, sure. More than passing, yes.
4: So when you see election results come out, do you assume that the only story then is who got the most votes, or are, is there is it worth finding out why someone got the most votes, what that person did to get the most votes, what external factors might have created a situation where that person got the most votes?
2: Of course. I think it's it's important to dig deeper and find out everything you can about why somebody is doing well or not doing well or whatever the case may be.
4: And yet when you watch baseball, the only thing you care about is the result not
3: the process.
2: Yes, correct. Because <laughs>
3: <laughs> This sounds like, John, this sounds like a, a counter argument you've been sitting on and just been waiting yes, to drop.
2: Yes, I agree. This is, you're, really, you're really coming on strong here. Here's, no. my, here's, here's what it really boils down to to me, John. There's a lot of numbers involved in these stats and I am not a numbers person. That's it. Mostly.
3: Well, a lot of the things that MLB.com people Chris and the network explain, people. No. I'm trying to explain. <laughs> you know, I'm not ready for now. <laughs> dro- I'm
2: Chris, this is your first time. Drop your, <laughs> Let drop John your, talk.
3: Drop your next um, <laughs> premeditated <laughs> question. No, please. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I mean, front offices use this stuff in a much more advanced and complicated way than we'll ever see or know or be able to understand without a lot of research and diving deep into it but i think it is worth knowing why certain things happen because especially when you're using that information that peripheral information
4: to build a roster with imperfect information right with imperfect results i should say
3: so and one of the interesting things that fishman said was if you if batting average is the only matters and exits exit velocities don't he said that good players can have bad years, even if all the statcast measurements remain consistent. So the theory that things even out over the course of 162 games might not necessarily be true every single year. Sure, that's how someone can have, that's how a good player can have a quote bad year, right? And still be a good player. But I'm not sure if I'm answering the exact I question. Still that you asked. Okay, I Hillary, still don't do, get it. Hillary,
4: do you play it. poker?
2: Not really. No. Do you know anything about poker? Sure.
3: Okay. Do you
4: agree that you can lose a poker hand despite playing it better than the person across the table? Of
2: course. It's how the cards are dealt. It's how the
4: cards are dealt. But the person who plays the best is going to win more of the time.
2: I guess so. Yes. That, that makes there, sense. There is
4: such a thing as a good poker player and a bad poker player, even yes. though always the cards are going to be dealt. Yes, correct. Okay. Agree. So obviously, if you do the right things enough in the game of poker it should pay off in the long run. If you understand the odds of every situation, that doesn't mean you're going to get the king you need in that situation. But if you know that your chances of getting it are good enough that it's worth betting on, that means you're a good poker player probably, right?
2: Right. But still, still, you're saying that if you have a bad year, your spin rate or whatever it may be, exit velocity is going to be consistent throughout the career? Is that what – is that the – it's general not, idea it's not saying
4: that as so what's the opposite of that what it's saying is if you have a bad year but you can look at the peripheral pieces and say these were good regardless that means that it probably was just bad luck whereas if someone has a bad year and you can look at the mechanics and you can look at all the different things that he's doing and say the ball is just not coming out of his hand right and it's not finding the right locations or he's not hitting it hard anymore then you could say wait a minute this might be something more than just bad luck
2: is that right chris
3: that's right. Okay. Because
2: <laughs> you, for guys that have Nailed it,
3: good years, you can look at a lot of times it's due to a very high batting average on balls in play or something along those lines. And you can look at those numbers and say, okay, what's his exit velocity? What, where is he hitting the ball to get this high batting average on balls in play? And if the exit velocity is much lower than what somebody that would normally be hitting at this clip would be – there's much more space for regression later in the year or in the next season. And the thing is, this isn't even like this is considered advanced because it's now
4: popping up on scoreboards or on your TV. I mean, BABIP batting average on right. balls in play has been around forever. I mean, not not forever necessarily, but it's been around for a long time as this idea that a certain percentage of the number of balls you hit should end up being hits correct? Right, yeah. Okay, a certain a certain number of them. So, if your batting average on balls in play is very low, that should mean that you're getting unlucky. You follow that, right? I got it, yeah. If your batting average on balls in play is very high, that should mean you're getting, you're getting very lucky. Hits. You're getting lucky. You're getting yeah. lucky, though. It's not just get, you're getting hits, you're getting lucky. You are getting more hits than you probably should based on the way that baseball works. So, if you see a player who's got an incredibly high BABIP, you would say... This might not be a great investment because this appears to be a lucky year. Now, this stuff is more available now, and it's more you know immediate. And if they're using things instead of saying just you know the result, maybe your BABIP is high because you have an inordinately high exit velocity and launch angle. So that's why you're able to say, yes, he has a high batting average on balls in play but it's because he's hitting the ball the right way that more of his hits are going to fall in. So you can say, actually, you know what? This might not be random. This might not be just luck. He actually appears to be hitting the ball extremely
3: well.
2: Okay. And how are players reacting to this information?
3: Players, for the most part, choose to continue to go about their business the way they always have. Uh, I think this is a theory that i've just developed that to be and he's testing just, it out on you guys here we go but <laughs> no i think to be a professional athlete at the level that these guys are you have to have an amount of focus that is exceptional compared to the average population and muddying up your daily routine or what has gotten you to this point can have negative effects but on the other hand players do get that information broken down to them eventually because the front office gives statistical breakdowns to the coaches who then use the information to make lineup decisions and in-game coaching decisions. So the players are directly affected by this stuff but it's more from a coaching standpoint where they're told you know, go shift here as opposed to them diving in and actually knowing a ton about this stuff. There are exceptions but for the most part that is the overriding feeling
4: so Chris when you hear things like you know Aaron Judge hit the ball um, farther than anybody in the StatCast era obviously we take in the StatCast era with a grain of salt because that essentially means like the last two and and a half years Uh, Um, (laughs) but what are the things that, as you know, we get better at this and as we get more familiar with it, and as maybe even Hillary starts enjoying it, what are the things that we are going to be able
3: to understand that we don't yet understand? I think they're still figuring some of that out at MLB.com, which is the place where most of this stuff is going on. They are creating more and more measurables every year, and a couple of the new ones they've introduced now are hit probability and catch probability, which... Do you want to explain that to her? Yes. Please. Do. Which, <laughs> please. Roll, I don't have any idea what that means. Which <laughs> measure? <laughs> <laughs> which is kind of along the same lines that we were just talking about with batting average on balls in play. It eventually, or it essentially boils down to what catches are lucky or more difficult than others, and what balls should have been hits. So all that stuff kind of ties together, but. Well, I mean, let's let's go a little deeper on that. Okay. Basically what it is, Hillary. Basically what you're saying there is if
4: he hits the ball at this angle and this hard to this place on the field, how often should it be a catch? Now, most things are going to be very high, obviously. But where where the forever in baseball the error stat has been flawed is that if you read Moneyball, you understand, you know, an error is simply a ball that a person didn't field that he got to. But doesn't give you any credit for getting to a ball that other people might not have gotten to. So basically, if you're an amazingly fast right fielder and you're chasing after a ball and you get your glove on it and then it just pops out, you might get an error. Whereas if you never got there in the first place and the ball never touched your glove, you're not going to get an error. Now, that's objectively unfair.
2: (laughs) Right. Yeah.
4: Because errors often penalize more rangy fielders. Mm Mm-hmm. That's, um makes sense. so a catch probability what's going to say is instead of looking at it simply error or not error, if you see a ball caught and you know it has a catch probability of twenty percent, well, that means that four out of five times that ball is going to fall in. You can say to yourself pretty quickly, that was an exceptionally good catch. And when you start, so that's like one data point. If you start turning that into catch probability above replacement, list, and I'm just making this up, okay. but if you start figuring out you know, ways to compare Aaron Judge's catch probability to other right fielders, then you might start to figure out, when we say Aaron Judge is a good right fielder, how good of a right fielder is he? These are the things we're going to start to be able to figure out.
2: Okay. So here is where my biggest question comes in. How does this make a player better? Like, if a player has a low batting average, they can work on their game, and they can work on, like, hitting better pitches or their approach to batting. How does how hard they hit the ball help them? Like, is that something they can work on? Is that something that is something they can get better at?
3: I'm not sure that players can necessarily improve their exit velocities because that has to do with – if you look at the yeah. top five guys in exit velocities, it's – John Carlos Stanton and Aaron Judge and Chris Bryant and these huge people that you cannot practice getting that size. Right. You but can't
4: practice that in a batting cage. You can you practice can, it in the weight room. You can
3: practice it in the weight room, but most of the guys in exit velocity have hit the ball that hard consistently throughout their careers.
2: Okay. What about um, any of the from, other advanced steps? You
3: can, well, hold on.
4: Before, before you say that, though, I, I want to go back for a second. How do you get better at it? Well, here's one example of something because – There was just a Ringer article second week of June looking at, you know, the massive spike in home runs recently and pretty much conclusively saying that there's something different about the ball. They actually managed to test some new balls compared to old balls and they tested them compared and it looks like there's something different in the ball. But one of their hypotheses and one of the common hypotheses is that a big difference in why there are so many more home runs is that players are swinging up more. Well, that um, was going to
3: be my next right. Okay. Point.
4: So so you know maybe you're not going to necessarily train yourself in the batting cage to hit the ball harder, but you can change the plane of your swing. And if, and if it becomes clear that it's more effective in the long run to strike out more, but hit the ball over the fence more, a player can say, you know what, I want a less balanced swing, and I want to uppercut a little more, a la
3: Ted Williams. The best example of this is this season is probably. Ryan Zimmerman of the Nationals has traditionally had a very high exit velocity throughout his whole career, and this year he's supposedly retooled his swing in the offseason to hit the ball at a different launch angle, and he's now one of the best hitters in the National League. For the Yankees, MLB.com's Mike Petriello wrote an article about Brett Gardner and his increased home run output this year, and Gardner has been quoted as saying he hasn't changed anything physically in his swing, uh, but Petriello argues that the numbers show him hitting the ball in the air to the pull side which to him is right field much more frequently than he ever has in his career which would indicate some sort of change in approach at this point this deep into the season
4: and just watching him in batting practice there's clearly something happening because he is putting the ball in the second deck right down the line all the time in batting practice and I've watched Brett Gardner take a lot a lot of batting practice in my life and there's something different happening there
3: so this kind of comes full circle to where this changes exactly what you're seeing when you watch the game which is almost nobody attempting to steal bases, everybody waiting for the home run, and a ridiculous number of strikeouts. But I'm even
4: going to say one other thing, and this goes back to the original wars between sabermetrics and, or sabermetricians and Luddites, if you will. Um, That's me. <laughs> there's always this constant battle of, you know, it's joyless or, it's, you know, you don't believe in the romance of the game. You're just trying to break it down. And the thing about StatCast, just as it was with everything else, is you don't have to care about it. You can watch the same baseball game you were watching before that doesn't make you less intelligent that doesn't make you more romantic or me less romantic about the game or anything there's just information there right now that if you choose to play around with it you can have some fun with it otherwise it's the same game you can and i'm not saying you here anyone who wants to just believe in rbis and wins They can't. And it was was fine in the 1920s. Go ahead and do it again now. There's nothing wrong with it. But if you want more information, if you want to understand why the votes broke down the way they did in this district's election, that information is there for you now.
2: All right, guys. Here's the thing. Chris, you wrote a great article, and I really enjoyed it. John, thank you for all of your input and turning this into a political discussion. You're very welcome i'm slowly turning around to this advanced thing but i'm still gonna drag my feet as much as possible if that's okay with everybody
3: it's okay Aaron judge hits the ball hard to you and to us it doesn't matter if you know why thank you i appreciate
2: that all right so coming right up on this episode i take you to the red carpet of the movie megan levy which premiered at yankee stadium on june 5th plus we'll all talk a little bit about a story john wrote for the July issue about michael pineda so stick around On June 5th, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center hosted the premiere of the movie Megan Levy at Yankee Stadium. I was at the premiere, and along with some other reporters, I caught up with the film's director, Gabriela Copperthwaite, actress Kate Mara, who played Megan Levy in the film, and rapper-slash-actor Common, who played Gunny Martin, Levy's commanding officer. Each of them shared their thoughts about the movie, Megan, and much more. Here are those red carpet interviews. Thank That's you. Cool. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, what resonated with you about Megan's story, and why did you want to tell
5: it? I think to me, was, I'm very, I was very—I was very curious about how a female comes up in the, in the military. You know, the military right. world. I also knew nothing about canine, I knew nothing about the canine unit. So I think both of those were exciting for me to be able to kind of like find two doors, you know, yeah. to be able to kind of open up and experience this war film through two completely fresh perspectives.
2: Mm-hmm. And you're here at Yankee Stadium. Megan now works for the Yankees. Talk to me a little bit about this whole Yankees connection that she has and how exciting it is to be here tonight.
5: It's, it's just, honestly, it's bewildering. I kind of can't even believe we're actually here. <laughs> we shot here a year ago, mm-hmm. and it's like I, you would have never, I mean, I, I know we, we always said, wouldn't it be cool if? Right. You mm-hmm. know, And the fact that we're here, I just have so many people to thank I don't know I think it honestly it's serendipitous it brings it all home right in a way for us
2: how was it working with Megan and, and kind of having her involved in like knowing the real Megan
5: and then she, shooting her she's bill. just the coolest ever I mean I think it was a, it was super important and valuable to me to make sure I met with her mm-hmm. and we had almost her DNA in Kate's portrayal of her yeah which is like she's a cool girl. Right. You know what I mean? She's yeah, just I like her last week she's really cool. She's so cool and she's so like accessible mm-hmm. and I think it, it, it's almost important to understand that this this is the type of person who, you know, went through these crazy extraordinary things in her life and she's just someone who you could just hang out with and someone who defies the word hero. It makes her uncomfortable. Like so those those are the types of things that I I loved about yes. her and I hope that came through in the movie as well.
2: I think it's important on a number of different levels first of all it's a military story it's a female story you're a female director telling this story right. so what does all that mean to you to kind of put all that together and what do you hope people take away from it
5: you know i think it's so yeah. important it is one of those things that it just is a, it's a thing yeah like right we just like That's this important. is right. yeah. in a lot of i'm sure <laughs> yeah. in a lot of industries you yeah. know where you you want to see more of yourself represented in that like you know when i'm Watching a lot of war movies, I think to myself, like, I don't know who I would be in that. Like, where am I? I can't yeah. find myself in them. And am I the wife who stays home? Am I the what? You know, would I be that right. sergeant? Am like,
6: the
5: right, right, and like, none of those really seem to fit. You know, so for me, yeah, it is important to have a female voice telling a female story um, in a very kind of male-dominated context, which is which is the world of war. So, um, and the world of film. So, um, yeah, it's um. I'm grateful for the opportunity. I hope there are more for all women.
2: Yeah, definitely. And any chance you come into a game anytime oh, soon? Are you
5: kidding me? <laughs> right? I'm like, I will jump at my first chance. Yeah. I want my boys. Team. Well, my boys have never been to a... Oh, really? We're in California. Okay. And so um, my boys have loyalties? never been to... I'm originally from Colorado. Okay. So okay. although, definitely a Rockies fan. <laughs> I definitely bleed some purple. Like, I'm a Yankees fan. Like, I have... like. This is just, a, I'm here. <laughs> and so I kind of want their first experience to be here. Yeah, to watch it You know, it. Like, just cool. to watch that and just to know that history and everything. So, yeah, Thanks. it could be extraordinary. What made you sign on to do this particular?
6: I uh, was super moved by it. Um, Also, it's really rare that you get sent a script about a female in the military, so um, I was excited to play a Marine. Um, And then, of course, the animal aspect of it just really tugged at my heart, and um, I felt very connected to to that aspect of the film as well.
1: What did you get to learn about Megan that we may not have learned from the film?
6: Oh, probably things I shouldn't tell you. She was awesome. We just sort of hung out um, when we weren't on set and, um, you know, having serious conversations. We would just watch football together and, you know, drink beer. It was a very, yeah, just just like friends would. Mm -hmm. And that actually was even more helpful to me than than you'd think, just hanging out together and and getting to know her.
2: Megan and I actually work here at the stadium together. Oh, cool. So I know you have a sports background. too, your whole family. Yeah. Sports, so what's it like to kind of be here at the stadium
6: and? and take it's crazy. I never thought I would be at a premiere at <laughs> Yankee Stadium before or any stadium for that matter. Um, so it, it, but it's very, very meaningful and emotional, specifically for this story. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Has
2: such a connection here. Yeah. So what was it like to work with her personally? Well, you know, she's, yeah, know. she's the best. I'm talking about you like
6: you're not standing you're right dying. here. But she she was in a scene with me where she plays my drill sergeant and she's screaming in my face, telling me I'm a wimp while I'm trying to do a pull-up. So that wasn't the most <laughs> joyful experience. No, but she was so fantastic, and I really felt like she was supporting me and had my back.
2: And you're both from New York, too. So yeah. it's cool to have this New York story. Yeah. yeah. Hi Megan, Hi. how was
4: it working with the cast and the crew that was populated by women?
6: Um, yeah, most of our a lot of our crew were, were female, which can be rare in this business and so um it was it was a very special thing. It was nice to sort of look around and and see um, that many that many females, and I hope that it you know continues and that it's not such a rare thing anymore.
2: And then just following up on that aspect of the female um, filmmakers, I wanted to ask you about working with Gabrielle in particular and your collaboration with her on, on working on this film. Well.
6: She and I were friends before. Um, after I watched her film Blackfish, we became friends and um, share a lot of the same passions and interests. And um, and I really respect her as a filmmaker. So working with her was. Joy. I really trust her, and we sort of had a way of communicating unlike any other that I've
2: ever
5: had. What made you sign up to do this particular film?
1: Well, when I read it, I, I felt I knew that it was... Once I read the script, I realized it wasn't a war story. Mm-hmm. It was, like, a love story. And, and because everything, like, from when I first began the story, it showed Megan Levy as a real person. She was drinking and getting drunk and doing crazy stuff that we all do sometimes. But then, like, she, she started evolving when she joined the military and then met this dog. It kind of taught her something. It was like, for me, it was like, a different way to tell a love story, and it wasn't just about like this woman loving a man or a man making her better. It was like a woman who discovered herself mm-hmm. through a relationship with a dog, and it kind of was empowering to me to see a woman character be that strong and go through it, and then not be about a guy. Right. Yeah.
2: You're uh, an actor, a singer, a rapper, a poet. You're a storyteller in yeah. all senses. So how important is it to you to tell stories? This one in particular.
1: I mean. I th- I feel like the stories that we tell can help change the world. They help improve the world. Um, and by telling the stories not in a preachy way, by, the story doesn't have to be like a, a racially driven story for us to relate, to relate to, to each other as human beings in different races. I think Moonlight was a great example of that. Like people hadn't seen people, black people that express themselves in that way. I think with Megan Levy, it's a different way for us to see, like, just a person discover themselves and and discover what love is in just a different way through a relationship with a dog. Like, we don't always get that, like, in our stories. And to see a woman character, like I said, that's empowered and and doing powerful things and going through a journey and then not be based on a, a relationship with a man, you know? So I think that's empowering.
5: Biggest
1: lesson that the viewers can take from this film? I think that um, we all can grow to become better people, mm-hmm. that we can um, that the that love overcomes everything and it's with, worth fighting for it. Um, and, yeah, I think that's those are the biggest things.
2: You're a sports guy, a Chicago guy. What's it like to be here at Yankee Stadium?
1: It's incredible. I got to say, like, when I, when I got here for a sound check, um, I was like, Yo, this is dope. Like, like you know, you, you see it on TV, and, you know, I've been in New York. I mean, I've lived in Brooklyn, so it's like, but i I never been to Yankee Stadium, so I'm really honored, like, that I'm in a film that's premiering. And when I heard we were premiering at Yankee Stadium, I'm like, wait, where at Yankee Stadium are we premiering? Like, you know, and to know that they're actually showing the film at, at Yankee Stadium, we're getting to perform, and it's a, it's a cool thing to be a part of. I'm just grateful.
4: And what Thank advice you. would you pass on to young people um, of color who are trying to get their big break in
1: Hollywood? I would say make sure your stories are original. Make, mm. Keep them truthful. Look for things out there in the, in the, in the world that, that people haven't seen from us. You mm. know, because there's so much diversity and depth in who we are. But, you know, many times Hollywood would only want the stereotypical thing. It's starting to shift and open because our voices, like you have shows like Atlanta, Insecure, Queen Sugar, and and films is coming out like Moonlight and different films that deal with the the spectrum of who we are. So get inspired and go out there and do. It. And in another show, um, that even shows black people um, chewing gum, you know, like that, you know, where and that's black Britain, but it's a woman, for, a black woman that, that writes and so. To write with your own voice, that's what the young black filmmakers and storytellers need to be doing, is write with your own voice, like write with a voice that's unique.
2: John, you wrote a really great article about Michael Pineda for the July issue. What can you tell us about that?
4: Well, I think Pineda's an interesting guy, and he has been since he got here in what was a really, really odd trade after the 2011 season. He had been an all-star that year with Seattle. He was pretty rough in the second half, but he was a good player, and he was traded for you know, the Yankees' number one prospect, Jesus Montero. And you just don't see trades like that ever. You never see teams— Giving up on you know a top prospect for another prospect, um, so it was really interesting, and then it became just a nightmare for both sides. Montero was truly a disaster in Seattle, um, just unmitigated disaster. And Pineda, in his first spring training with the Yankees, was hurt, and then he missed a lot of time. And finally, gets back on the mound in 2014, right away, looking pretty good, and then he has an incident with a getting suspended for being caught using pine tar um, on his neck. And, you know, the last two years he's been frustrating
2: right so it's it was kind of like a situation where it's one thing after another and he was never quite what they expected and with montero being not what anybody expected out in seattle it was kind of a situation where like who won this trade did anybody win this trade so Uh,
4: i mean you would say the yankees won the trade simply because michael Pineda is still a yankee um (laughs) or, or, or at the very least still a major league baseball player but yeah, it, it, was a, it was a weird trade in the way it worked out. Just neither side uh, is, wouldn't necessarily be celebrating uh, the result of it. And you know, the thing is, last year, Pineda was really good at times. He told me he was you know, 15 to 17 pitches away from being great. And it works if you look at it. I mean, they were just, he had a, more than 200 strikeouts. He was very effective most of the time. And then he would just get blown up for an inning. Right. Um,
2: One inning, he'd allow a home run with two guys on base, and all of a sudden, three run score, and then it would snowball from there. And it was with
4: two outs or with two strikes. And he just, you know, his location with two strikes, he was just putting stuff right over the plate in a situation where a guy was going to be protecting, anyhow. And of course, that ball's going to be crushed because the guy's protecting. So he was just very frustrating. He obviously, according to pitching coach Larry Rothschild, who said it was actually more like 10 to 12 pitches, he said, you know, the, the peripheral numbers, everything they looked at, it was great. He should have been a good pitcher. But it wasn't working.
2: The win count just didn't add up.
4: Yeah, the win count, the ERA, just the results. The team wasn't winning enough when he was pitching. And so you go back to the home opener this year, and he was amazing. He was perfect into the seventh inning. It was just such a great day at the stadium. It was always going to be a great day at the stadium because opening days are the best. But, you know, know, all of a sudden, Michael Pineda, who? Like, who's doing this? Michael Pineda? And he was amazing. And the biggest thing that I found in going through his first two months— was just a lack of blowups. He wasn't always going to be as good as he was in that start, but he was effective. He was useful. He was in control, as Aaron Hicks said. He just wasn't losing his focus. He wasn't losing his moment, and the team was winning when he was pitching. He went nine straight starts uh, with three earned runs or fewer, and this is at a time when the Yankees' offense was just demolishing the ball. If you are going to give up three earned runs or fewer, you are going to win a lot of games with this offense.
3: So if the stuff for him was always there, which is evidenced by you know all the strikeouts over the last couple of years, what changed for him this year that has allowed him to pitch deeper into games and get out of those jams? Well, if you talk
4: to him, if you talk to everyone around the clubhouse, they'll say the biggest change is that he, no pun intended, the biggest change is that he believes in his changeup a lot more now. He's got a really interesting changeup. It's uh, not so different from, a spe- from speed as his four seam fastball. It's only about five to six miles per hour different. Whereas, you know, you sometimes hear 10 is kind of where, you know, you're supposed to be in the differential between your fastball and your changeup. Um, Pineda's not there at all, but he's able to keep the arm motion exactly the same as it is with his four seam, which is something that we're able to see from StatCast data. And the thing is, you know, his fastball, he's a righty, his fastball has a cutting motion. So his fastball is going to come in a little bit on left-handed hitters he's got a wipeout slider which is going to come way in and down on left handed hitters and the slider that's his strikeout pitch he's that 50 percent of two strike counts this year though he's willing to throw that change up at any count so the change up comes in around 88 89 but you know it goes it breaks arm side down so it breaks in on right handers and away from left handers
2: the most interesting thing you had this line in your story. You were talking about one specific game. He threw, I think, thirteen changeups, and none of them induced a swing and a miss. So, how is it that his changeup is effective? I think you did a really good job of getting to this in your story.
4: Today. Yeah, it was a really funny. It, it was a funny situation for me. I mean, I'm not a pitcher. I'm not a pitching coach. And after, so it was a late May game. He was fine. He wasn't great. And you know, he threw thirteen changeups, like you said. And four of them were swung at, and all four of them were hits. So the batting average against his changeup was a thousand. He got zero swings and misses. But after the game, Joe Girardi, the manager, Pineda, the catchers, everyone was saying why he was effective in this game was because his changeup was good. And I was wondering, well, what does that mean? You know, it doesn't seem like anything was being effective with the changeup. And actually, it was Adam Warren, another pitcher, who helped me make sense of this. The idea is. It's such a different pitch from his other two that if he throws it 13 times, there's the knowledge there that it could come out at any point. This isn't something he's bringing out three to four times a game. It's there. It's part of his repertoire, and you have to respect it in any count, in any situation. So even though he only threw it 13 times, it's something. It's so different from his fastball and his slider that it's something that's on hitters' minds every single pitch. So that makes it effective in the way it affects... The other 90 pitches he threw that day, even if the 13 changeups that he threw, it wasn't like, you know, he got seven strikeouts on them or anything like that. It was just that it makes his repertoire more mature and more difficult to defend against.
2: Right, because it goes a different way, so now a batter has to be aware of, like... There's pitches moving on both sides of the plate,
4: and uh, you know, Austin Romine, who didn't catch him that day, but as a catcher, is always like, offers good insight on pitchers. He says more, you know, it's that arm motion being exactly the same as the fastball and then going the opposite way. He says, I mean, it, it's just it's so hard for he and and Pineda's a big guy too, and big pitchers are always a little harder to pick up and things like that. And just the ball breaking the opposite direction can be so effective.
2: How have you noticed Pineda in the clubhouse? How is he reacting to the success? Is he any different? Is he more confident? Has he always been confident? What do? You, what's your read on him as like a guy in the clubhouse?
4: Pineda's a pretty funny guy in the clubhouse because I mean he's a big guy. He's bubbly. He's always kind of loud and jumpy. And, you know, he's very popular. And he kind of sits in an area of the clubhouse near Delon and near CC. There's always just crowds around there. And, you know, he's always laughing. And right when I start – so I, I was working on reporting this for a good, like, month and a half about, I would say. And I was really trying to talk to a lot of the guys in the team about what he's like. You know, because, again, all that we see is, you know, what had been in the past a frustrating outcome pitcher and then the bubbly guy in the clubhouse. And everyone – on the team I spoke to just went on and on about how hard of a worker he was, how determined he in the weight room. Luis Severino was <laughs> telling me that the guy just runs nonstop. And Luis Severino, who is like just this streamlined perfect like athlete body and Michael Pineda is not Severino was saying that you can't keep up with him and that you know he can't run nearly as much as Pineda does which again if you looked at the two of them next to each other you would not guess that Severino is having trouble keeping up with Pineda
2: yeah no not the picture I had in my head
4: no but he, he apparently he's just a maniac in the weight room and the players I think that it, it can be very frustrating for players when you can't get out of an inning as it was in the past you know you think you're close you think you're doing it and then two outs and you just you know two out rallies can be really frustrating for players and i mean players aren't going to admit it necessarily when they're frustrated with a teammate but you can see how happy they are this year with the way that he's able to get out of innings and that there aren't these sustained rallies and look it's june late june you know who knows maybe everything's going to go wrong you never know with baseball but it does seem like cc sabathia was telling me they've been trying to get him to trust this changeup for years now and if it's real and if he does actually continue to believe in it at least the way these guys talk about it it seems like it's something that can be sustained and it seems like something that he can use uh to work moving forward
2: it's cool it's been exciting to watch him because he always seems pretty electric on the mound and you never know what's going to happen in his start so it's been fun to watch him seems like a positive change well
4: it's a positive change especially when you look at you know the yankees pitching rotation made it to the middle of june without needing a sixth starter And, you know, you don't usually see that. You kind of expect there's going to be some, you know, movement in the rotation. Someone's going to get a day off, especially now with the 10-day DL. You're seeing a lot of teams who are kind of using that as a way to just skip one start. And now we're at a situation where a lot of Yankees pitchers are maybe needing that extra day or maybe getting hurt. I think we went from five in the first 10 weeks of the season to in the next week we saw two new starters. But... If Pineda can be that guy who is a reliable every-fifth-day starter for this team, even when they're slumping a little bit like they are now, this is a pretty remarkable offense that the Yankees have right now. They don't need no hitters every day. What they need is a pitcher who keeps them in the game and makes it so that if the team scores five runs, they should win. And that's what Pineda's giving them right now. And if he can keep giving it to them, he's going to win a lot of games because this offense is going to hit.
2: And he's already exceeded his win total from last season. Yeah. So it's success already.
4: Exactly. It's
2: exciting. That story is called Change in Perspective. It's in the July issue of Yankees Magazine, and it's coming out soon. Thank you, John, Chris. Thank you for joining us today. Welcome to the podcast. We, we were glad to have you. Thank you. Uh, Nate, Nate's going to have to work his way back. Yeah, Nate, we miss you, but, you know, Chris is doing great. So Thanks a lot, Hillary. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of the Yankees Magazine podcast. Please subscribe and review us if you haven't already and get in touch with us. We'd love to hear from you. You can reach us on Twitter. We're at Yanks Magazine or email us at podcast at Yankees Also, don't forget to pick up a copy of Yankees Magazine when you're at the stadium or you can subscribe to the magazine, too, by checking out Yankees slash publications. And in the meantime, you can find some of our long form content online at Yankees slash magazine. Thanks again, and we'll talk soon. Bye.